Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Miss the show? No worries on point and on the podcast. We're talking about BC. Of course, a lot of people in BC asking, how could this happen? I mean, after the deadly fires that burned down the town of Lytton, why weren't officials prepared? And why weren't people warned of the impending danger? Because they have no national or provincial warning system? I mean, how is that possible? We'll talk about that. And what will all of this mean for supply chains? The Vancouver ports are the fourth largest in North America, and right now ships can't drop off loads. Every single day, ships come in. $550 million of supply come in every single day, and these ships are just sitting there and could be sitting there for weeks. So this will absolutely have a ripple effect across the country as we're already dealing with these supply chain issues. And we talked to Pierre Pauliebra about the financial storm coming with surging inflation. It has, of course, gone up again. It's not going down. So will the prime minister curb his spending or will he ignore the warnings and be like his dad and spend, spend, spend? We will talk about that. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. We really need to move from response to recovery very quickly. We cannot be complacent. We need governments, meaning our local, provincial and federal governments, to act with urgency. We need our trade corridors to be reopened and the movement of people, goods and services to be re-established as soon as possible. You know, we had the long, hot summer. We had a very poor growing season, unless you had irrigation. You know, the ongoing effects of COVID. And now we have this situation. Yeah, it's, it's testing the resilience of dairy farms. That's for sure. No question about it. Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, November 17th. And boy, oh boy, what a challenging time. You know, I kind of woke up and I saw all the headlines and I thought, what a challenging time we are living in right now in this country because we've got a bunch of perfect storms of chaos brewing on all these fronts. And they're all going to affect us, all of them. And um, for our friends in, in BC, obviously, what they're going through right now, I mean, the devastation is just getting worse by the minute. And it really takes your breath away. I mean, you just, I kept, I'm watching the pictures all day long. And it really, you know, gives us only just a glimpse of what they're going through. And if you've ever actually been in a natural disaster or covered a flood, and I've done a bunch of those, it's always way worse when you're there in person. And um, the good news is military is going to go in. I get 300 on the way. 4,000 will be made available to help. Albeit, I don't know. What are you waiting for? Just go. They need it. But um, a lot of these people in these valley flats are underwater and basically fighting for their lives. They've got no power. They are running out of food. They need clothing. And it's really cold. I mean, they've got snow there. So they need life's necessities. And shelves are empty. My friend Chris Sims, who we've had on the show for the last couple of nights, has been trying to get food, and she sent us pictures of the shelves, completely bare. And um, no supplies can come in because the major roads and rail have been destroyed. And the Vancouver port 
is the fourth largest in North America. So every single day, $550 million of cargo comes into port. And right now, there are ships lining up back to back to back, back to bow, back to bow. And they can't unload. They have nowhere to go to unload. And we're talking about shipments of, you know, furniture, food supplies, uh, Christmas merchandise that retailers have been waiting for. It may be weeks before any of this stuff can move. I mean, I hope it's days. I don't even think it's going to be. I think it could be a long haul. So we're going to be affected by this. And then there are all these heartbreaking images of farmers trying to get their animals to safety. I don't know what you've been watching. I mean, I, I cannot watch an animal in pain. It just uh, it does not sit well with me. And the Fraser Valley, which is now underwater, feeds at least the pr half of the province. So it's a major contributor to the food supply chain. And I was looking into some of the numbers. There are 25,000 chickens, 45,000 cows and horses, and they're either trapped, freezing, or starving to death right now. And the agriculture minister of BC uh, came out today and said, you know, farmers haven't just lost the crops to the blistering heat, but now they are literally watching their livelihoods and livestock get washed away. Over the last two days, I've been able to have um, FaceTime discussions with farmers and some of them are in their barns and some of their barns are flooded and you can see the animals that are deceased and it's heartbreaking. This is an especially difficult time for our livestock producers. No kidding. Absolutely no question. And for those wondering, well, why didn't they get out? Why did they leave? Well, you know what? You're not going to leave your livestock to suffer. I don't know anybody who owns any kind of farm that's going to just bail. They're going to try to save whatever they can. They have to. And the minister, you know, updated us this afternoon, says thousands of animals have now been killed. And others uh, need medical care, and there's no vets, so they can't get access to vet care. There's no food to feed them, and so a lot of neighboring farms in higher areas are, are coming to the rescue and taking whatever they can. Alberta's offering food. Uh, but when farmers can't farm and when they lose livestock, uh, our food supplies dry up for the province, certainly of BC. Um, I mean, the, the farmers there have been told, you got to dump the milk. We're talking millions and millions of liters of milk gone. And they've lost the technology that they need to test for diseases. So even if they have milk to produce, they can't get it tested for bacteria and diseases because all of that infrastructure has been completely washed away. So there, there's just such a struggle right now uh, going on in that province. And I know all the talk is about climate change. I mean, look, first of all, I don't think BC needs a lecture on climate change right now. But I think we also have to remember that these farms in this area, this was a lake at one time, and it was drained back in the 20s. But it is a marshland. It's a, for, it's a floodplain. So sure, climate will play a role, but floodplains flood when extreme weather hits. And if the infrastructure is not in place to deal with these kinds of increased threats, which we talk about all the time, then it is a disaster waiting to happen. And how bad will this disaster be? I don't know. Terry Glavin wrote a really uh, terrific, if not heartbreaking, eye-opening uh, article on, because he's right in the heart of this thing, of what's happening and uh, says it, it is likely going to be the worst natural disaster this country's ever seen, unprecedented. So we're going to talk about that um, during the show. 
certainly. And then there's the other financial storm of brewing. Of course, we've got inflation numbers in, and here we are seven months straight, and it just keeps ticking up, ticking up. We're at the highest levels we've seen in the last 20 years. So it's not a blip, not going to be short-lived. And while uh, our prime minister admits he doesn't focus on monetary issues, this is an issue very much coming into a very, very sharp focus for everyday people being confronted with all these prices of food. I mean, food's up 14%, right? I don't know if you've seen the price of butter lately. Eight pounds for a block of butter? I mean, I looked at the price and said, I'm not going to eat that. I, I will skip the butter, I guess. That is ludicrous. And if you're on a fixed income, can you imagine? Can you imagine if you're fixed income and you're trying to buy your family somewhat decent food, something healthy? By the time you bought the milk and the butter and you're on a budget of 25 bucks, you got about six, seven bucks left. It's it's just not affordable. You're not getting vegetables. You're not even getting the good stuff. And so, you know, the bottom line is... um. It's a challenge he's going to have to start focusing on. And, and the government's been told bluntly by the banks that they cannot spend any more. So whatever big-ticket promises they made during the election have to be broken or inflation's going to run out of control. Question's going to come uh, for the prime minister. I mean, sure, he can hide behind the, the chaos of Aaron O'Toole for now, but he's going to have to make a decision. Are we staying down this big spend road or am I going to, you know, rein it in and try to get things under control? And... um I think his big problem is that the NDP have to be kept happy. They love to spend. They don't care. Spend, 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 spend. So what's the prime minister going to do? Maybe they will get a relationship with the conservatives and uh, say, hey, we'll keep you in power, but you cut this and this and this and this and this. Huh? Maybe that'll work. Heavy rains, strong winds, flooding have devastated entire communities of our province. Thousands of people have been forced from their homes under evacuation orders, and many others were left stranded between road closures and mudslides. Yesterday, the RCMP confirmed the mudslides have claimed at least one life. That's devastating news for a family. It's devastating news for all British Columbians. But sadly, we expect to confirm even more fatalities in the coming days. That is uh, Premier John Horgan uh, coming off of his sick leave. He's uh, dealing with cancer right now, and he uh, is addressing this national disaster, which uh, could become the worst kind that we have seen in this country. And uh, it's dire. And there's more th you know, flooding threatening. There's a water system that right now they've got it in control, but if it does breach, it could be game over. And as I've been talking about, there's food running out, uh, shelves are empty, a lot of hoarding going on right now, and supplies are not coming in. And officials admit they were caught off guard, even though they knew heavy rains were coming. Alex Vizina is a CEO of Prepared Canada Corp and has a graduate degree in disaster and emergency management. He joins us now. Good to be, uh, good to have you on. Good to be on again, Alex. I um, heard the press conference this afternoon, and a lot of the questioning was about the alert system. Like, why, where was it? And not only were some of the comments, so they said, you know, we knew the rains were coming. We just, we just didn't, we weren't ready for it. I don't know how they weren't ready for it. But I also, they've got this kind of patchwork system in place to notify people in certain areas of pending weather instead of having a national system of you got to get out now, almost like the Amber Alert system. How can that be? So uh, we want to start on communications first, just to be clear. 
Just focusing yeah. there. Or okay, just I just want to check because there's a no, no. We'll we'll start there. I mean, I'm just wondering, like, how 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 is it that a major province, you know, and one that talks about climate change and after what they went through with Lytton, how were they not prepared? How did they not know to warn the people? Uh, well, it's not a matter of knowing to warn the people. It's a matter of being able to warn people. And in emergency management in general, uh, you run into the issue of informing people promptly. Um, being being problematic through any one source, like having any having one national system to inform people doesn't work. For example, uh, if your national system is internet based, it doesn't hit people that listen to radio. If it's radio based, it doesn't list, uh, hit people who uh, listen to the internet, etc. So, uh, not there is no national alert system anywhere in the world, basically that gets to every population. Uh, you have issues with distance, issues with demographics, listening to different things. This isn't a problem unique to Canada. It's just a reality of emergency management. Uh, further, there is a big problem in this specific uh, type of community where you'll have three or four different systems that tend to compete with each other, and they can be, it can be difficult to navigate, to be honest. So I'm not really surprised um, about that, and I don't think that the communication side, frankly, is is um, is a is a bigger issue than the the watershed. Yeah. yeah well, clearly that is a problem. Which which you know they've got this system in place, these pumps um, that they're they're using, and they've sandbagged them, Alex. Which last night overnight, I mean, they were like it was dire. Like if this water had burst, it's we're talking two point five million. Leaders uh, comes smashing through uh, every minute. Um, they manage to sandbag it, but that's just a temporary Band-Aid fix, hoping that the water will go down. How come they don't have a better system in place to navigate that kind of water, fully knowing that this was these farms are built on a floodplain? Well, this is three times the amount, more than three times the amount of water uh, than the highest levels they've they've ever seen historically. So I, yeah. I know that I know that the whole um, this is an unprecedented scenario gets overplayed and is kind of a a, a, a talking point excuse that everyone uses now for every bad thing that happens, but the reality is that mm -hmm. this was unprecedented. It, you know, three times the highest recorded value. No one set up for it. No one prepares for three times the amount. It's too expensive. the 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 mayor of Abbotsford was talking today about how there are other infrastructure projects on on other riverways that need to be addressed. One of which costs half a billion dollars. And the reality is that no government is going to realistically give half a billion dollars to a municipality of less than 200,000 people um, unless it's a build back better scenario. And, a, and, and build back huh. better scenarios only apply once the thing has been destroyed. Right, right. But I mean, when you've got an, a corridor that feeds you know, half the province and, and you're a government that totes climate change, climate change, climate change, we've got to be prepared and you're charging a carbon tax, you think, OK, what can we do to prepare for climate change, get the infrastructure in place, dare a, you know, unprecedented event hits? That's what the governments could do with the carbon tax. Uh, they're not doing it clearly because here we are. And so, you know, on the outside looking in, because the pictures don't actually tell the whole story. I mean, this is a daunting. This is this is not going to be cleaned up anytime soon. I mean, wh what are you seeing? Weeks uh, to I get mean, things in control? Months? Longer. And when you say cleaned up, it also depends on uh, how far-reaching you're talking about here. So when, when you deal with water disasters in general, the problem is the water tends to bring everything on the ground into it, and it's right. not like the water is clean. One right. of the other things that right. the local media in the area has been reporting that hasn't been reported on broadly, uh, the, the police uh, chief, I believe, of Abbotsford actually commented on this. There are people kayaking in the water 
Um, And part of that water includes large piles of manure that are used by the farms. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. frankly, because cows have to be milked regularly, uh, when they can't, Mm -hmm. the milk trucks can't get there, they have to dump it because you have to milk Mm -hmm. the cow. So you have raw milk goods and, and manure in the water and people kayaking. Now, it's not a lot of people, but it's some people. You have a combination of responders trying to help out, hundreds of ex-military and ex-firefighters coming in to volunteer and, uh, and assist with the situation, people kayaking, uh, responders dealing with pa- downed power lines and fires in a flooded area where the smoke mm-hmm. from the uh, fire can conduct the power lines and ground right. electricity where they're working. Like, you yeah, know, you're talking about that big RV fly fire. Some people might not realize there's a massive fire in an RV. Um, 100 RVs went up in flames. It was massive, as if firefighters don't have enough on their plates. Uh, they had to put that out today. And so those are the challenges they're dealing with, uh, you know, that pop up out of nowhere. Yeah, and, and just once again, like the, the importance of safety for responders is a pretty big deal here. And I just want to reiterate that this, kind of, this picture for people. Imagine you're trying to fight a fire, but you have to be careful about how close you get to the fire because the smoke may conduct the, ele- the electricity from the power line and hit the ground where you're standing. Like, mm-hmm. like it's, yeah. it's not a simple situation. And some of this stuff no one is going to spend the money to prepare for. Like, we can talk about every province in this country uh, overhauling its floodways with things like the way the Red River floodway was overhauled in Manitoba, the multi-billion dollar infrastructure project that saved 10 times its cost in one flood year. We can do that, but now we're talking about billions and billions of dollars in infrastructure projects, which become political really fast, and we know how political things get. Yeah, we do. And sadly, this will become political as well. But nonetheless, uh, not a clean uh, and not a quick cleanup. I've got about 25 seconds, Alex, before I hit the clock. Um, What is the biggest challenge uh, in your mind that they have in the coming, the immediate days? Uh, Immediate days is they're frankly praying that it doesn't rain again. That's pretty much it. And then long term, um, no one's going to be made whole by this financially, and there's a reason why insurers don't give you flood insurance in the area, yeah. and it's going to get pretty bad pretty fast financially. Yeah, well, the federal government has promised help, but that well, you're not being made whole. Start ruling you. Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. No, no one is. Alex, appreciate it. We will call on you probably again, but I do appreciate your uh, expertise. Thank you. Thank you. That is uh, Alex Vizina, who is uh, an expert in disaster and emergency management. On top of all the other supply chain news we're, we're getting, uh, this might be the straw that breaks some backs um, this holiday. This is this is an absolute disaster, and I come at it from a retail perspective, but this is hitting everything. Well, there you go. You know, so while we watch all these heartbreaking human, you know, cast- catastrophes unfolding in BC's interior from afar, uh, we will feel it here because the mudslides and flooding have washed out all the major highways, some of the rail lines that connect BC to the lower mainland heading into Alberta, those things are gone, which means trucks and trains needed to ship supplies literally can't move anything. And so right now, we've got all these other supply chain issues. But the Vancouver port, which is the fourth largest port in North America, is now backing up each day with $550 million of cargo It has nowhere to go. We're talking furniture, food supplies, grain, coal, Christmas supplies needed for retail, 
None of this can get in and none of it can get out of this country. And so this all becomes very dire if it's not somehow remedied in the next couple of days. John Keogh, founder of Chantella, expert on global supply chains, also a professor of practice at McGill, teaching on convergence of health and economics. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Alex. So this is not a small matter of, oh, well, they flooded, it'll clear up and we'll get going. I mean, these roads and this infrastructure is going to take possibly weeks, if not months to rebuild. And this is a, a big problem. That, that's right. The word catastrophic is being used in BC right now. And it's very unfortunate because it's, it's a very resilient uh, uh, province. And, you know, the government tracks these disasters going back uh, from 1820. So they're, they're, they're not new in BC. Uh, but, you know, the whole system in BC was already recovering from the heat dome and the fires. So this is a real sucker punch for those who were recovering. Yeah, I mean, the area that's really flooded, uh, certainly, it's one of the biggest farming areas in that region. I mean, they have uh, chickens, they supply milk and dairy and cows and all the rest of it uh, to to a huge portions of BC. All of that now under threat of, of you know, so they're going to probably be seeing, not just immediately in that local area where they're, they're running out of food, but the entirety of BC uh, will soon see empty shelves, correct? That, that's right. In fact, uh, some areas already have significant uh, food shortages with uh, empty shelves in supermarkets. And in the Fraser Valley, the dairy farmers were told by uh, BC Milk Marketing Board to dump their milk, which is very unfortunate. Ugh. And yeah. other farms, uh, their milk is being redirected to Alberta. So it, it is a c- catastrophic situation. And, and if you add to that, Alex, you mm-hmm. know, animals uh, are also yeah. threatened here and farms. Yeah, I mean, you're hearing the stories. I mean, you've got uh, chickens that are going to freeze to death because it's very cold there. You've got horses that, um, you know, they can swim, but eventually they tire and they have no food. You've got cows. They're trying to get them to higher ground. That It is heartbreaking to think of, of the loss of life in that area. Um, and it's not exactly to come back. They had a terrible summer um, of heat, which really hurt their, their crop yields. So they had a lot of challenges farming this year. And then to add on to it, this. And so the question becomes, what's the implication moving west to east? Will How will this impact Canadians? Well, this could be quite significant, as you mentioned, with the ports being backed up as well. And we have to remember that it's uh, it's not just the, the roads and the rail, but it's also the power, the power grid is impacted. And then we have, uh, you know, potable water. Uh, so there's there's the knock-on effect to other ecosystems in the infrastructure is quite significant. And so it's it's hard to know when this will recover. And I know the BC government is looking at possibly uh, putting in a state of emergency today, which will give them extra powers. But there's also drivers with empty trucks and with right. full trucks that can't get into BC. So it, it's uh, it's going to get worse from here on in, unfortunately. It also means, though, that we can't ship out. And so Alberta, which needs to move coal, whether you like it or not, uh, grain, uh, raw materials to go out to places like China, none of that stuff can move through. And that's not just going to be a few-day problem. And so we have to look to the, to the bigger picture of how this then implicates or exacerbates the bigger supply chain um, you know, bottlenecks that we've been seeing. Yeah, that, that's right. And it's a matter of, you know, can the other provinces help out? And there's, there's, in fact, there's very little that they can do uh, when you have no roads and you have no rail. I mean, everything literally stops. So uh, 
it's going to be very difficult uh, for the recovery. And I hope that uh, BC is a very resilient place. I lived in Vancouver, mm -hmm. and of all the provinces in Canada, you know, disaster preparation is is strong on the agenda in British Columbia. But uh, this is something that nobody had planned for. Well, and that's the question. How is there not plans in place? I mean, a lot of people say, okay, so you do the criticizing, but what's the solution? What's the remedy? I mean, these are these supply chain issues, which were, of course, impacted by the pandemic. They were a problem before the pandemic. They needed to be sorted out before the pandemic. So here we find ourselves, John, in a situation, again, where governments see the problem coming, they just don't deal with it, and then it gets further exacerbated and then turns into a disaster when disaster hits. Yeah, I talk about this a lot, Alex, uh, academically and also professionally, and, and this is the lack of systems thinking. So we have to see all of these systems as connected, you know, human resources, yeah. truck drivers, uh, roads, rail, and, and, and the sea systems. They are all interconnected ecosystems. So even if you go back, like the, the New York Times uh, headlined in 1948, May 31st, 1948, that Vancouver, B.C. was isolated. You know, uh, the tracks were washed, rail service was out, and thousands were fighting the floods. So again, they track going back to 1820. So some people are saying that this is a once in a hundred year uh, disaster. But in fact, there's multiple weather ecosystems within British mm -hmm. Columbia and in some of them, you know, they have disasters every couple of years. Others will be every 10 or 20 or 50 years. But these things do repeat themselves. The issue, Alex, is the lack of systems thinking. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that there's no uh, real mitigation strategies for this. I, I heard one of the mayors saying that all the water is coming in from the U.S. And I don't think that's a good excuse. No, it's not a good excuse. Um, and again, uh, we pay these people to to make sure that we're prepared for when the rainy day comes. And then, uh, you know, we have elections and we argue about stupid wedge issues and none of these issues get discussed. And so here we are with a whole lot of Canadians kind of watching, saying, how did this happen? And it's not as simple as saying, well, it's climate change. OK, well, climate change, then build the infrastructure to deal with the changes of whatever the climate brings. And, and in this case, um, you know, they built these farms on on floodplains they had to have known at some point this could become an issue when you get major rains and now here we are with a flood zone and it's now going to uh ripple out and affect our our supply chains um and possibly throughout the world yeah you're absolutely right uh, alex uh, again as i mentioned earlier i went over a list this morning uh, which which tracks the disasters from 1820 to 2006 so, uh, again, if you look at the different ecosystems within uh, British Columbia, you know, the, the avalanches are very normal, the mudslides are very normal, the flooding is very normal in some areas. So a lot of this was, in fact, predictable. Yeah, <laughs> it's always predictable and then often ignored. So, John, just, just give me an idea, because we know and we've been seeing the stories out of the United States where you've got these um, you know, container ships just kind of hanging around the harbors trying to get in and offload their stuff. The trucks aren't available to pick it up. We've got all those issues that we're dealing with. What is it going to look like in the coming days as $550 million worth of goods try to get into those Vancouver ports? Are other ports going to be able to take those? I mean, in the U.S. and ship them? I mean, what's what's the alternative at this point? 
I don't think there's any alternative except to keep those ships at sea for the time being. And, you know, it's only just over a week ago when we had the ship that lost over 100 containers yeah. in bad weather. So if we have uh, more bad weather coming and more storms, uh, it'll just make the problem worse. It'll be precarious for these ships to park, uh, you know, in, in the uh, or to, to dock in the uh, in the bay. So it's also very expensive, I should point out. I mean, they also have to gas up, (laughs) which I guess they can bring the diesel out to it. But I mean, these ships cost money just sitting there. I mean, it's it's not a cheap. uh, So this, again, it drives up. It'll end up driving up the um, prices. And then, of course, if you're a retail store, you're looking at a, a Christmas with no goods. Yeah, this is again. It's also a sucker punch for for the retailers who were, you know, expecting to get their deliveries through the Vancouver port and get them across Canada. And all of that has stopped right now. So I think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty within the supply system, and and that'll that'll you know affect all of Canada. Because I know that uh, you know companies like Canadian Tire they have yeah. invested money in the port of Vancouver, but if the if there's no roads and there's no rail, you know that Jeez. stops as well. Wow. I mean, we're going to just keep continually hearing day after day after day as the wrinkles start coming out and the picture is going to get, I think, much starker in the coming days. Very much appreciate your time. I know you're watching this carefully, so don't be surprised when I start bugging you kind of. What's going on now, John? Now what? Now what? So appreciate your time always. Thank you, Alex. John Keogh, founder of Chantala, an expert in all things supply chains. So very good to have his voice. When I think about the biggest, most important economic policy this government, if re-elected, would move forward, you'll forgive me if I don't think about monetary policy. Uh, You'll understand that I think about families. Oh boy, if there's a moment I'm sure Mr. Trudeau could take back, you'd think that might be the comment he would want to walk back. That, of course, was from the election. Um, Otherwise, you wonder, you know, how out of touch is the Prime Minister when it comes to the threat of inflation and how it actually affects the families he says he cares about? And so here we are, seven months in, where inflation just keeps going up. And so we're at 4.7%. While the Bank of Canada has been somewhat reluctant to admit that this is even a thing, the banks have certainly made clear that inflation is not going to be short-lived or painless. And the Bank of Canada has now admitted interest rates are on the way up. So when you actually combine this, with things like surging energy and food costs, all these supply chain issues and labor shortages. We're heading into some very difficult times, and the Prime Minister is going to have to make a choice of what he's going to focus on, spending or keeping the ship afloat. Pierre Polyavra is the Conservative MP for Carleton, as well now back in his role as finance critic for the opposition. And very good to have you back there, Pierre. Good to have you. Great to be with you, Alex. Okay, so I, look, it comes as no surprise that inflation numbers are continuing to move up. We were told that they would. Um, you know, I, I don't want to pick on the Bank of Canada or the Governor uh, Tiff Macklem. He's not a stupid guy, but it, it almost seems like he's been trying to hedge the bets as to the reality of the situation. Right now, I think Canadians just actually want stability and some direction of what's actually happening. I couldn't agree more. And uh, originally, uh, Christia Freeland and the governor of the Bank of Canada told us that COVID would cause deflation, dropping prices. And now uh, they blame it for inflation. So there's definitely been a contradiction, but uh, the reality is that inflation is every now, everywhere and always the result of too many dollars chasing too few goods and services. And that's what's happening now. 
uh, through the biggest deficit of any G20 country. Trudeau has sent $400 billion out into the economy competing for scarce goods and services and, and obviously driving up their price. Inflation is now rising two and a half times faster than wages, which means everyday Canadians are getting a real pay cut. Their paychecks buy less food, uh, um, housing, gas, and other essentials. Uh, And we need to do is uh, take the opposite direction, and that is to get back to normal pre-COVID levels of government spending. Uh, Don't create any new programs. Phase out the deficit in the medium term. And unleash the productive economy so that we can actually, instead of creating cash, create more of the stuff cash buys, produce more energy, build more houses, grow more food, make more cost less, paychecks, not debt. Yeah, but we're, we're with a government and people do say, well, what would the conservatives do? Well, there you go. That would be the solution of the conservatives. And I would love to see that happen. But we have a government that has made very big spending promises. And their number one priority is climate change. Um, so, they, you know, in the next couple of weeks, they're going to roll out their financial um, goodie bag, I guess, to Canadians. But the Bank of Nova Scotia, as you well know, came out yesterday and was pretty um, blunt when it said you cannot spend any more money and you have to change and pivot your position because if you continue to spend, you're going to make this work. I don't get the sense there's going to be a change of plan because in order to survive, you know, um, any of this, the government of the, of the day has to appease the very spendy um, NDP, and, and they do want to spend. And so where do you see this going? Badly. Um, if, you, if they do continue with the deficit spending, uh, we'll see more dollars chasing fewer goods, which mean, will mean higher and higher prices. Uh, the cost of government drives up the cost of living. Uh, it's no surprise to anybody who's had to run a family budget, unlike Mr. Trudeau, that when you spend more, it costs more. And here we are uh, with the, the most expensive government since the Second World War and uh, obviously a high uh, cost of living for everyday Canadians. But, you know, we can turn the ship around and bring spending levels back to normal pre-COVID levels. That allows us to sustain our core services like health care, education and the armed forces. Without creating brand new programs that will lock in permanent deficits and higher inflation and taxes. So that's what I'm proposing as a conservative finance critic. Uh, let's um, make more cost less paychecks, not debt. Right. Uh, but look, Alberta's going into a boom. Uh, there's energy needed all over the world. There is an opportunity here for us. Uh, but you have to have a government that wants to grow that kind of business. And we have a government and, and you know, popular opinion suggests that climate change is the number one issue. And the Canadians don't seem to want to develop that. I, I don't think that's the actual view, but that is what the, the popular view is. Um, and so if we don't grow something um, and our real estate market market suddenly cools, which it very well could any day, uh, we could be in a lot of trouble. Yes, there are a lot of risks. Um, So on the first point, you talked about energy. Uh, We have the second highest reserves of oil on planet Earth. We also have the most ethical and environmentally friendly sector uh, on the planet. And so what we should do is uh, allow our energy sector to safely transport its goods to market by building pipelines with Canadian steel. Uh, that would create tens of thousands of jobs in the sector. And at the same time, let the uh, 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 or in, incentivize the, the companies 
to invest in carbon capture and storage and reduction of the emissions and uh, other improvements that they've already been making so that the oil that we sell from Canada is actually less carbon intensive and carbon emitting than our competitors. Instead, the current government's doing exactly the opposite. They're attacking our energy sector while President Biden is encouraging OPEC to produce even more oil. Uh, so what's happening is we're, we're having more oil production in countries with very low standards. I call them the dirty dictatorships and less production in places with high standards like our own. But we also have a president um, who our prime minister is going to be meeting tomorrow to talk about, um, I, I guess, uh, renewing new ties or whatever. But there's a, a very dangerous piece of, um, you know, legislation that he's put through with very very bad protection measures that are going to hurt this country, in particular our auto sector, which we're trying to steer in the direction of electric vehicles. And if those protection measures of giving Americans credit for only buying American-made electric cars um, stay in that uh, deal, uh, we're going to be in real trouble on that. I don't know if you've gone through the free trade deal. I bet you're going to say you have. But are there not protections in place that that should spare us from this? Or is this something that we're going to have to renegotiate? Well, unfortunately, Christia Freeland negotiated a terrible deal under the USMCA that uh, allowed the Americans to go on with Buy America, with tariffs on our softwood lumber, and now with new uh, protectionist measures that they hadn't even considered before. If we had, uh, if Freeland had negotiated a good deal, it would have excluded the Americans from doing any of these things. Um, and so that, that's uh, what Harper did when he was in office. He was able to negotiate uh, exemptions to Buy America and end to the softwood lumber dispute, uh, and even reimbursement of American collected tariffs back uh, to Canadian forestry companies. Um, that's the kind of professional diplomacy that gets results, protects jobs, and puts food on the table here in Canada. And we're encouraging the government to, to start that kind of approach uh, tomorrow when they go to uh, to Washington. All right. I know I've only got set time with you, and uh, I would be remiss if I'm not asking. Um, your party's been in the headlines a lot lately, and not for keeping Trudeau's uh, feet to the fire. Um, Aaron O'Toole has been in the headlines because there's a division in the party. Um, and I think people from the outside looking in are saying, what is going on with the Conservative Party? Why are they always fighting? And is is it a situation of chaos? So do you back Mr. O'Toole? Is the party going to get stuff done, or are we going to continually see this chaos and division within within the party? Listen, we have to get stuff done. We have to focus on the bread and butter issues that affect the lives of everyday Canadians. Um, and that is, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm encouraging all Conservatives to unite around the fight against inflation. Uh, we have to, we have to get this, uh, these numbers under control because otherwise the everyday Canadian is not going to be able to afford food on the table, gas in their cars and homes for their young people. I'm meeting I met a guy the other day in my ride and lives in a trailer park. He's renting with his wife. They make a hundred grand between them, but they have calculated that it will probably take them about seven years to save up for a down payment to eventually own a house. That should be our number one focus as conservatives. Uh, we have to turn our attention to, to the things that matter in people's lives rather than uh, internal squabbles. So when will that division be sealed soon? I mean, do you get do you do you feel confident that Mr. O'Toole can can you know bring the party together? I think so. I think if can if we can focus on what matters to the people that elected us in our respective ridings, 
then we get our attention onto those uh, issues and actually serve a public interest. That, that's what people want. They want to see us working for them, not for ourselves. On that note, I will let you go, and uh, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be with you, Alex. Many blessings. Bye now. You as well. That is uh, Pierre Pagliavra, Conservative MP. Of course, you know him. I don't even have to tell you who he is for Carleton and, of course, finance critic for the opposition. So entertainment is back in question period. That's what I can say. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.